So this, uh, this evening uh, is October 1st, uh, which if you can believe, it's October already. Um, now that means a lot of things, but what it also means is it means we're officially into the big month of the Reformation anniversary. Uh, because 500 years ago, the, well, more or less what we call the Protestant Reformation began. And so uh, as part of that, we're kicking off uh, this month uh, in which we'll be talking about a number uh, of the uh, themes of the Reformation um, with one that's actually not a part of uh, what are called the five solas. Uh, we're going to kick it off with something called Sola Ecclesia, uh, which is the one church uh, and church unity. Um, mostly because it's World Communion Sunday, but um, I'll get more into that in a minute. Um, before I do that, I kind of want to place what the Reformation was and why it got started. So where the past few weeks have been a little heavier, this is going to be a little more, uh, we'll say, academic. Um, so we'll hope I can keep this part interesting. Um, I love history, so I think this stuff is fascinating. Because why are we here in this place? Why am I this as a Methodist and not a Catholic? Why is, did this tradition form out? Um, why did we have this Reformation? All of that is fascinating to me. Uh, to first kind of place this, we have to understand that the 16th century world was a very different place, obviously. But one thing to remember, 16th century world barely understood what this new world was. There was just really beginning to be the exploration uh, at this time of Martin Luther. The, this place was more or less swampland that only the indigenous peoples knew. Uh, it wasn't something that the Europeans had even really begun to explore yet. Uh, and it was a time where, at least in Europe, the Middle East and Northern Africa, there was the church. Uh, and really that meant the Roman church, led by the Pope. And then, of course, there was also the Orthodox church led by the patriarchs. Um, that was kind of the first church split that happened uh, right around uh, 1000 A.D., but by and large, when we talked about the church, and when you hear about the church throughout history, most of the time we're talking about the Roman church, the church that was based mostly in Rome, though occasionally would sway. Uh, they moved to France for a little bit because, you know, they just wanted to change things up, and then they had like four popes at once because, you know, why not? One pope isn't enough. Let's have more than one. Uh, no, it was not at all like that. It was actually a pretty... Uh, big conflict. But anyway, uh, that's, that's a side note. That's, that's the fun stuff um, to me. Uh, so largely Western Europe was dominated by this Roman Catholic Church that was also closely tied to the political powers of the day. The Pope, in some cases, was the one who actually crowned the secular leaders, especially when it came to something called the Holy Roman Empire. The Pope was the one that came in and crowned and basically certified that this person was, in fact, the new emperor. And the Pope himself was... Uh, well, first, he, he not only crowned the secular leaders, he also had papal uh, dignitaries that went out to all of the courts of these uh, 
various empires and kingdoms. And then the Pope himself had something called the Papal States, which were basically like a small little, not exactly country, but the Pope was the king of them. Like the political king of them, as well as the head of the church. These were part of the papal duties. And so the Pope, pope was a monarch. And then there, so there was this intertwining, especially with these uh, political leaders, between the secular and the sacred. And it got a little messy, as often happens when you mix the secular and the sacred. And somewhere along the way, uh, they got a little less focused on the eternal souls and the present suffering of the common people. Corruption followed, with bishops and cardinals and popes living more like their royal counterparts than the average sisters and brothers in the monasteries. And this was the world that Martin Luther was born into. It was the world that he entered the priesthood into in uh, 1507 when he was ordained. And so what Martin Luther saw when he looked out at the church was a church that had a bit of an identity crisis. Because Martin Luther, being a priest, was someone who had studied scripture. He understood the Latin and he was very aware of how the church had lost touch of its roots. That it had taken the focus off the people of God and was instead focused on the leadership of the church. Losing the sense of servant leadership that Jesus had called us to. I mean, as an example, in those days, uh, it was the common practice for the priests when Holy Communion happened. Now, this part with turning their back, turning their back uh, continued on into the middle of the 20th century when we had the Vatican II. Uh, but in those days, it wasn't just that the priest would turn their back and celebrate communion with the people behind them, but they would turn their back, they would have the communion liturgy, they would partake of communion, and then the service would continue. And the people watched as the priest participated in communion, and they did not. In many ways, the priests became the ones who did everything for the people because, after all, they were the ones who had studied Scripture. They had the understandings. They had the learnings. They were the ones that knew God. And they were helping the people. Understandably, this was also a time when, uh, just before the printing press. And so... It wasn't exactly easy for Bibles to get out. In fact, most communities, most churches would have one Bible because a Bible had to be handwritten by monks and they were really expensive. Uh, in those days, it wasn't as easy as, you know, oh, I can just go down to the corner store and buy a Bible. Bibles were uh, expensive. And because they were so expensive, they also often decorated them with beautiful imagery because they also wanted those who couldn't read, which was many people, most people, to be able to understand the stories. And so they were illustrated Bibles that were handwritten, hand-drawn. And so what we had was the priests who took most of the work on, on behalf of the people. 
The priests heard the prayers and confessions and interceded for the people. The Bible was only in Latin, and so therefore, even if you could read, you likely couldn't read Latin, and you, uh, if you happened to walk into the church and look at the Bible, you probably couldn't read it. So the priests were reading the Bible to the people and then interpreting it for the people. And then there was this one particular thing that irked Martin Luther a lot. And that was the church took financial contributions for the forgiveness of sins. Most, uh, most of us would know this as indulgences. There was a period of time in the church where the church thought it was a great idea to fund the operations of the church by those who were wealthy enough to afford to pay off their sin debt. Which, from a financial standpoint, that makes absolutely sense. For the accountants in the room, Austin, you're, you're bringing money into the, uh, into the black, right? You want to keep things in the black. That makes sense. However, from a theological standpoint, there's no amount of money I can pay that offers my, the forgiveness of sins. There's, in fact, there's nothing I can physically do that forgives my sins other than turning to God and asking for forgiveness. And so Martin Luther saw a church mired in a world of secular and seeming to care very little for the people. And so on October 31st, 1517, so just 30 days and 499 years, something like that, there's a number there, uh, Martin Luther decided he needed to say something about the state of the church, and so he nailed what is known as his 95 Thesis to the primary church in Wittenberg, Germany, in a somewhat form of protest, but also um, one thing you should know about churches back then, so church was kind of in the center of town, and so actually the door of the church, because you know, the churches sometimes would be closed, and so you weren't necessarily able to get in them, but the door of the church was always there, and since it was in the center of the town, it made the perfect bulletin board. So it may sound a little strange to hear about Martin Luther coming along and nailing his 95 Thesis to the door, but really it was just because that was not an entirely uncommon practice uh, in those days. And so he nailed his 95 Theses to the doors and in doing so launched what would become known as the Protestant Reformation and two years later he was excommunicated. Uh, so Martin Luther uh, he, he, brought, he was seeking to bring about some reformation to the church. He thought the church needed to be reformed, to brought back to the people, that the people needed to be involved in the church. He thought that the corruption of, and the wealth of the church and the ways in which the church profited off the people didn't seem right. And so he began to talk about and teach about these other ways. And so it got him excommunicated, because one of the things that the Catholic Church has always done is have um, a very uh, strict understanding of what their doctrine is. Um, it's part of what held the church together in unity in those days. And so this Reformation kicked off a huge struggle, because other folks were thinking some of the same things Martin Luther thoughts. And what he said spoke to folks, and he suddenly was gathering a following. And then it wasn't just Martin Luther, but it was others that were jumping in on this Reformation bandwagon. 
And what we end up with, long story short, this is, there's a whole lot that goes in in the middle that would take much longer than the time I have for a sermon today about how they got there, but in, it ended uh, up leading to the secular powers and the church dividing up much of Europe between the Protestants and the Catholics, and sometimes who was who would flip-flop based on who was in power, and there were wars, and there was violence, and there was persecution. They had the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. They wrestled for control, and all the while uh, fighting over what was the true and sound doctrine and who had the right to express it. And much of this really continued into the 20th century because um, the most famous recent uh, version of this was uh, the Irish Catholics versus the Irish Protestants. And um, that was in the 1980s when that really kind of finally came to a peace, at least more or less. That's not to say it never happens anymore, but by and large, there was a lot of violence that came out of this Reformation. In some ways, it felt more like a revolution because it was tearing at the fabric of what people believed. And when you start talking about what people believe, people's personal beliefs, and when power is involved as well, that leads to conflict. And so we saw a church and a continent uh, mired in this controversy, this question. Now, not everything that came out of the Reformation was violence. In fact, some really good things came out of the Reformation. For one, the Protestants decentralized authority and took the need for the priests to be the intermediaries and gave it over to the people. The people became participants in worship. Uh, if you know much about a Protestant service versus a Catholic service, I talk a lot longer than a Catholic priest does, even today. Uh, Catholic sermons can sometimes be as short as five minutes. That's not to say that a Catholic would never speak as long as I do, but for the most part, they had short messages because Catholic worship has always been focused on the communion, which is why they have communion every single week. But we decided that the people could understand. And so we would share a message with the people. We would read scripture and then interpret scripture and invite the people to be a part of that process by learning. John Wesley was famous for telling people, don't just take what I say, but actually question it and believe it for yourself. There was this idea that we could begin to think for ourselves and understand and believe that we didn't need the priest to tell us. And so that decentralizing of authority allowed us to begin to truly live the Christian life, to take control of our own faiths, to live the words of Jesus as he had called us to do. And along with the Enlightenment, which also happened around this time period, the Enlightenment led to people thinking for themselves. The idea that you could question authority suddenly became a much more, uh, a much bigger thing. The idea that you could ask questions, that you could look to not just the Bible, that you could look to science, that you could have free thought, 
These were all ideas that began to emerge around this time and, and the church in many ways took on these and said, yes, you as an individual can read the Bible because we, by the way, have the printing press now and not only do we have the printing press but we're going to print the Bible in whatever language it is that you speak so that if you can read, you can read it in your own language so more people can understand and if you can't read, it can be read to you in your own language and you can hear the words and understand them. The Reformation also made it possible for people to say, I disagree. Which is a great thing in church because, you know, contrary to maybe popular belief, maybe that's not true in this community because um, I feel like folks would definitely push back on me <laughs> if you thought I was wrong on something. Um, if, if not to, to, to me, at least to Rick. Uh, <laughs> Um, saying I disagree uh, was something that came about and, and that was good but it also had some repercussions in that well um, I like to point out because I grew up in the south and my good Baptist friends and the joke was that my good Baptist friends anytime they had a disagreement time for a new church and it's a joke because it's kind of true there was lots and lots of Baptist churches in my little community, and we were a fairly small town. And to be fair, the Baptists weren't the only ones that did that. Pretty much everyone did that. Um, and it's something that continues to today. We continue to divide the church. There's new denominations all the time. There's lots of non-denominational non churches that are completely unaffiliated with any particular one tradition or historic tradition. The UMC is currently contemplating whether we should have another division because uh, of the, in the, bleh, contemplating whether in um, 2019 when we have our special called General Conference whether we should divide ourselves or not. Um, it's one of the underlying questions anyway of what is the future of the church. So this is, continues to be something today that happens. So when we think about the Reformation and the division that came out of it, and then we think about our scripture from today, this idea that I can disagree and then I can walk away poses a question. Because our, our scripture tends to teach a different message about unity. In fact, it seems to place a pretty clear value on unity and the one body of Christ. Uh, our gospel text today, for example, comes from the night before Jesus gave himself up for us. The night when he gathered his disciples and he instituted the communion meal that we'll celebrate in just a few minutes. Uh, Jesus in this text is offering a prayer for the disciples, but also beyond them to all of the church. Uh, professor Lucy Hogan of Wesley Seminary next door, who's uh, one of the preaching professors, said it describes his hope, his vision, and his picture of what we, his followers, are to look like and how we are to live our lives together. It is very clear that his words are meant for everyone, then and now, and as he prays for those who will believe in me through the words of the disciples. Jesus is not just praying this for the disciples. He's praying this for all of us. And he's praying for us to be one body, to be united, to know the one love of one, the one God, to know God as God has loved Christ, 
that we might know that same love. And so this body of Christ, this one body that we celebrate today with countless others around the globe in this in, is the community of faith, our faith, the one community of faith. And we are brought together in Christ as one body, one people, united by grace through broken body and shed blood and resurrection that overcomes even the darkest evils and heals the deepest divisions. United because as Brother Jeffrey Tristman, Tristman, Tristram. Check in with me, I'll tell you how to spell that one. Of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, uh, the truest thing about us is not our sins, not the mistakes we've made, not the pain we have caused others. The truest thing about you and me is that we are God's beloved children, fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image and created for life and love. One love, one body, united in Christ. That's the value that we hold here as the people of faith. And yet, we've been dividing ourselves for centuries. Now, this might be the moment where you would expect me to go, but we have to do better and we should all be one in church and we should all get along all the time and be happy and, and everything should be rosy and rainbows, right? Um, well, I want to introduce you to somebody else who you've probably heard of, so I'm not probably introducing you to him. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had something to say about this. Uh, one of his most famous works, if you're ever interested in it, it's on my shelf, is called Life Together. He wrote that for many, the idea of Christian unity is actually a dream, something that will never happen because the vision of many is community that is all roses and, okay, this is me paraphrasing, by the way. Um, the vision of, of many is community that is all roses and rainbows and happy, smiling faces. Bonhoeffer basically said that this was a pipe dream because the reality of community is messy. But in that messiness, the opportunity to have real conversation and talk emerges, to be real with one another. In that realness, we find one another's humanity. And oftentimes we find that in the ways we fall short and in our disagreeableness. But he says that in turn reminds us just how much Christ has done for us. That our times when we are divided and we are not unified and we are not the one body of Christ, we're always the one body of Christ, but when we fail to recognize that and see that in one another, that that is an opportunity to realize just how much God's goodness is, just how great God's love is, because that's how much it was for Jesus to die and be resurrected for us. Jesus was not unaware of who we were. Jesus knew exactly who we would be, and yet grace is never-ending. So, unity doesn't mean we like each other all the time, but that when we find one another disagreeable, we don't walk away. It means staying at the one table together. Refusing to say we will be divided, even when we physically divide ourselves, even when we move and we say, I can no longer be in this 
particular place, we say, I'm not going to walk away, at least not from you forever, because we are the one body of Christ. Because let's be honest, sometimes disagreements happen and sometimes communities divide. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying it happens. And when we do, if we can hold on to that unity, if we can remember that we are one body, and we're called not to walk away, because really, we all need all of us. It's a theme throughout Scripture, and it's something that I put on our t-shirts this year because I really think it's important. When I said real community equals everyone, it's not just because I'm hokey, and maybe I am, but it's because I really believe that real community is everyone, and if we don't have everyone, then there's something missing. That if we don't include everyone, if we're not welcoming of everyone, something's missing. Because we're this massive body of Christ throughout the world and time. And one of the things about us that is wonderful is we are wonderfully and fearfully made by God, each and every one of us, very unique individuals. There's no one like you anywhere else in the world, and there's no one like me anywhere else in the world, for better or for worse. We are all unique individuals, as has been every person throughout history, and all of us have different gifts, and all of us have different graces, and all of us are called to serve the church in different ways. And so when we fail to remember that everyone is included, that everyone's at the table, well, we're missing something. And so I want us on this uh, World, World Communion Sunday to celebrate that we come from all different places and identities and experiences. But no matter our differences and divisions that have led us to where we are today with our many denominations and traditions, remember this. We are one body with one Savior, one resurrection, one redemption, and one grace binding us together forever. Amen.